Love me, Father. We thank you for uh, just all the great tech that we have, even when we sometimes uh, forget to press a few buttons on it, uh, but that we have this capacity to stream our church service out, that we can be one church in many homes uh, during this lockdown period, and we have this sense of connection. Uh, Lord, we pray for... Uh, people in this time, we know that it's hard to be isolated and, and to not be able to have the normal rhythms of life, the normal family connections, the, normally, the normal friend connections. Uh, we know we are created for relationships and intimate ones and close ones. But Lord, we pray for people in this space. Uh, we know that you are a God of all comfort, that in this we would press into you uh, in our isolation, in our loneliness. We continue to pray for people who are, are working as it is uh, with this virus, whether they're in the medical profession, whether there's police, uh, whoever it is that are, that are keeping us safe. For those that are affected by it, we pray for cures and remedies and all that kind of stuff, that it would come swiftly. We pray for our leaders too uh, as they make decisions and, and, and that impact the way we live, that you would dial wisdom into their thinking. We know that you, you work through leaders who are, who are not aligned uh, with you and through leaders who are aligned with you so that we know that you can guide human history through your sovereignty there. Lord, as we turn our hearts now to this passage, we pray that your spirit would enliven us, that we would, that we would see your love for us in this, that we would see the extent that you go to uh, to bring us back into relationship with you. Uh, we thank you for these things, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know what? As I was kind of looking at this passage, there's some passages that you just think just need a little bit more to actually grab what's going on. If there's one passage that I would love to put in the hands of the Russo brothers, they're, they're the lads behind several of the of the Marvel movies, uh, it's it's this one. I think that they could uh, do a great job of bringing the, the drama uh, and the tension that's unfolding in this passage to light. This passage that we normally just refer to as the as the temptation of Jesus. And uh, you know, if they were to get hold of it, they could uh, help us grab the gravity uh, of the question that's actually being asked of Jesus in this passage. And at the heart of uh, this moment, if you like, is a question that's kind of framed around what kind of Messiah will Jesus choose to be? Uh, is he going to be the kind of Messiah who, who dips into his divine powers uh, for his own personal ideas or, or perhaps to, to placate the ideas and the thinking of others? Uh, you know, as good as they may be, or will he be the kind of Messiah who submits to the will of God as hard as that's going to be? You know, we've seen uh, throughout the start of this in Luke's grand prologue, witness after witness after witness, bearing voice to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And we're left with this very clear picture that he is uh, the savior of the world the messiah uh, that he is both son of adam and son of god come to liberate the world from the effects and the tyranny of sin but not merely at a social level not merely at a political level or an environmental level but this messiah is about deep heart change that that gives uh new life uh, that creates new men, that creates new women who would then go and live in radically different lives uh, in line with the design of God. But first, he must um, live a perfect pattern, if you like, of this new humanity. 
Well, as the drama unfolds here in chapter 4, we are bearing witness to an exchange that is nothing short of mortal combat. As Jesus goes, as Jesus the man uh, goes head to head with Satan. And it's not an overstatement. It's not flippant to say that nothing less than the fate of the world is at stake. Or perhaps more precisely, uh, that can paradise be regained? Can paradise lost be regained? Can the second Adam prevail where the first Adam failed? And plunge the created order into dysfunction uh, and humanity into enmity with God? And, and, And paradise was lost for us. Well, it's important to understand the history and the context in which this mortal combat uh, takes place because it is the backstory and the context that informs us as to why it is that the Spirit of God is leading Jesus out into the desert. Every detail of this story is, in, is important. And we, and we have to assume that this story actually comes from the mouth of Jesus, that he shared it at some point because he's the only person who's present when this all takes place. It's an event that isn't just filling in a bit of time, but the Spirit of God is intentionally leading Jesus into conflict with God's ancient adversary, the devil. Luke tells us that Jesus, filled with the Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness uh, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Firstly, uh, some of the context that we have to remember and, and some of the backstory is Luke's comparison to Adam. Uh, at the end of that genealogy, we flow out of that genealogy, that baptism, straight into this moment. Um, and that forms part of the context. It calls to mind another confrontation uh, in the Garden of Eden where Adam, uh, our original head of humanity, the original head of the human race, was confronted by this very same tempter. But tragically, Adam uh, mistrusts God, disobeys his word, and sets the whole of humanity on a continued mistrust and, and disobedience with God's word and in relationship with him. Now comes the second Adam, alone in the wilderness. While Adam, our, our first parent, our original head, faced the tempter in this perfect paradise where all his needs were met, where he wanted for nothing, uh, this Adam, this second Adam, will, will go into battle in the wilderness, in the desert, where none of his needs are being met. The difference between the two Adams is that the second one, Jesus, wins. And now as Jesus sets out and begins his ministry, he does so, as Michael Wilcox says, as the total obedient man, a man he was meant to be, a man who is altogether righteous, a man who never compromised or lost his relationship with God through sin. By giving in to temptation, the first Adam had banished us all to the wilderness. But by not giving in to temptation, this last Adam has brought us all back or can bring us all back to paradise. Jesus has come to regain what Adam has lost. And he does so by resisting the very uh, tempter that Adam fell to. Another aspect of this, or of, of the backstory that, that calls to mind, you sort of can't avoid it, and it was certainly on Jesus' mind, is the exodus and Israel's time in the wilderness. 
It's out in the wilderness that Jesus begins um, the, the regaining of paradise, if you lost. It was in the wilderness uh, where Israel failed to trust God and failed uh, to obey his word, that Jesus must now himself uh, cling to God's word, trust in God in order to resist uh, the very temptations that they fail to. The devil has already uh, you know, taken paradise from humanity and now he seeks to seize the promised kingdom uh, from christ if jesus were to fall into temptation um, rather than stand in solidarity with sinners who he's come to save then he would then himself join them in their own condemnation and there would be no justifying righteousness for us no atoning sacrifice no bodily resurrection and no hope of eternal life Paradise would be lost forever, not to mention the unimaginable uh, implications on, on the Godhead. But unlike Israel, Jesus emerges from this exile, from this wilderness, as a true Israel, one who trusted God, one who trusted God's provision and not his own, who trusted God's promise and word and what he'd called him out there to be, what he called him to do. And you can see why this passage is uh, deserving of this epic uh, cinematic telling, you know, that would make perhaps the Russo brothers' endgame look like a weekend at Bernie's. Luke tells us that after 40 days of being tempted by the devil, and at the end of a period of fasting, the devil launches one of three kind of final endgame strategy attacks. This first skirmish takes place on the battleground of relationship and identity. If Jesus is the beloved you know, son of God, why on earth is he suffering like this? The devil is seeking to cast doubt uh, into the mind of Jesus. Uh, doubt about who he is and his relationship with the Father. God may well have just said, you know, you are my beloved son back there at his baptism. But if that's the case, why on earth is he out in the desert starving to death? Out here in the wilderness, surely a Messiah, surely a Messiah who has divine origins should be rolling in a palace, you know, with kings and queens, getting to know the power brokers, um, being served and having servants, living in quite luxurious circumstances. Surely that's his right. Surely that's what he deserves. What's with all this Bear grill stuff that's going on? Maybe the suggestion is, maybe you should just check that God has spoken truly. Maybe you should just turn this stone here into bread. Because that's the kind of thing a real divine Messiah could do, you know, should do. Surely as the Son of God, that's your right. You know, did, did God really say that's who you were? Because if you do that, then you'll know and I'll know and, you know, away we go. The temptation that the devil is putting in front of Jesus is to reach past God's uh, will and his word. To use his divinity for selfish gain, for, for, for insecure assurance, if you like. God has said, this is my beloved son. And Luke has pointed out to the fact that Jesus is only in the desert because that's where the spirit has taken him. That is where he is in the will of God. These are the facts you know, it's a good point to think, of, think on, That's, that, that suffering is not actually the absent or absence of God's will. That suffering is not actually the absence of God's plan. 
What is crucial uh, is how we respond to suffering. Maybe the first place to begin uh, our encounters with our own suffering is to know that Jesus has been in that space too. The writer of Hebrews lets us know that Jesus can sympathize with us, with our suffering, uh, with, with our isolations, with our temptations, because he was made like us with every respect. Like he suffered and was tempted like a man. He had the same um, weaknesses, if you like, that we had. And he was tempted in every respect, but without sin. So Jesus' sympathy is not a passive sympathy, an unknowing sympathy. It's an actual active one. And he is offering to dial it into our present situations. Well, Jesus' own response, when he, when he responds to the devil here, lets us know that he is uh, taking the devil on in his humanity and not his divinity. Rather than, than feeling the temptation to defend his divinity, Jesus highlights his humanity. And he says, um, you know, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8, 3, where Israel experienced God's kind of humbling before they experienced his provision. It's the first of three quotes that Jesus uses from, from Deuteronomy 6 through to chapter 8. So it's fair to say that out in the wilderness, Jesus isn't merely enduring this. He's, he's meditating on Scripture, and in particular, this portion of Scripture. Jesus does two things here. Uh, he shows clearly that it will be as a man. Uh, it will be in his humanity, in his humanity that he's going to square off uh, against the devil. Jesus did not resist the devil by, by dipping into the superior power of his deity, but he did it in all the weakness of his humanity. He's also filled with the Spirit. He's, he's living in dependency on the Spirit. Jesus never tries to go it alone. He, he, never, he never mistrusts God for his goodness or of the Father, never doubts his relationship, but stays secure in all that the Spirit is affirming in him. Here we find hope and encouragement. We often use our humanity, uh, if you like, as an excuse for sin. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm only human after all. You know, what did you expect? But here Jesus shows us that as humans we can resist temptation. We need to call on the same tools that Jesus did. Jesus, again, full of the Spirit. This is the great gift of the Christian faith, that we have the same access to the same Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans 8.11 that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us and gives life to our mortal bodies. And in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that we are to be filled with this Spirit. The Christian life begins with the Spirit, uh, the work of the Spirit, and it's held in place by uh, the work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. We, we saw that as we went through the book of 1 John. Dependence on the Spirit is where Jesus fights this battle from, and it's where we must live from as well. If we are to live in accordance with God's will and, and, and to resist temptations, the second thing that Jesus does uh, is rather than doubt God's word, is that he turns to his knowledge of God's word. It's the word of God which has been spoken to Jesus that reveals who he is and what he's come to do all throughout the opening chapters of this, um, this gospel. God himself speaks his word to his son. And now Jesus, aided by the Spirit, dips into the knowledge, dips into the, the meditation on scripture to reaffirm that his trust and his dependency in God is not misplaced place 
Dependency on God, not independency from God. Trust that obedience to God, not compromise to circumstances, is where life is to be lived. Not in sort of instant gratification, uh, but is lived fully in this space. And Deuteronomy 8.3, which is where Jesus is talking from, tells us that there's more to life uh, than material comforts. Often the devil will come and he'll use the same strategy to get us outside of the will of God by creating doubt uh, in our hearts about God's word, what God has said to us in scripture. You know, he did this with Adam and Eve in the garden uh, and he does it to you and I. Things like, you know, are you really saved? Look how banged up and jacked up you are and, and how sinful you are. Could God you know, really possibly love someone like you? Are you really a child of God? And yet scripture reaffirms again and again that we are. This is true. The devil is always trying to create doubt in our hearts of believers around trusting his word. That is why it's critical to be filling our hearts with it, to be meditating on it. Jesus was not just sitting around in the desert, you know, just wasting time. He was out there meditating on it. And it seems, you know, most commentators agree that he he is focusing in on the book of Deuteronomy and that's holding him in place. The next attack that the devil launches at Jesus is around the one of power and worship. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil is essentially offering Jesus uh, a crown of ultimate power without having to go uh, through the crown of ultimate suffering. In an instant, the devil puts forward this kind of breathtaking, very spectacular vision of a world where, where war and starving and injustice and abuse are all brought under control, are all dealt with by this superpower, this alliance of Jesus and the devil whose combined power establishes this beautiful picture of global flourishing. Jesus can go about doing his miracles, preaching repentance and justice and never face the cross. Wouldn't, wouldn't we kind of all want that real quick, real easy way? An instant kingdom rather than a deferred one. Instant glory rather than deferred glory. Instant uh, healing, all this sort of stuff instantly. The devil's insincere concern for the well-being of humanity kind of masks a more sinister, ancient, dark desire. The subversion of worship. The subversion of power. Jesus can have an armchair ride to glory if he were just this once, you know, just for a split second. It's no biggie in time. Just abandon his loyalty to the Father and worship Satan. It's a direct challenge of the first commandment and a complete abandonment of God's plan that salvation, this new kingdom, will come through Jesus' obedient uh, servanthood, his obedient suffering. We're often tempted, uh, enticed by instant gratification, disguising itself as a good thing. We rationalize temptations. Uh, you know, we, we rationalize our sin as, as entitlements and things that, that, that we should be able to just grasp at. But Jesus doesn't loiter on this. 
Uh, but he immediately responds from Scripture again, this time from Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus' answer reveals that what you worship, you serve. Jesus spends no time entertaining an easy path, a crown without suffering or the cross. Jesus' goal is not to gain a kingdom for himself, but to rescue people from this broken kingdom, from this fallen kingdom that's already under the cruel power of Satan. To do this, he must suffer and die for our sins. There's no easy road to the messianic glory that the Father has promised him. There's no easy um, way to spiritual survival in a hostile world. Without it, there would be no forgiveness of sin. Without it, there would be no resurrection in which people could encounter this new kingdom that awaits Jesus on the other side of obedience and suffering. Jesus withstands the temptations to worship, um, the offer of an easy alternative uh, to compromise his loyalty and his devotions to God. And he does it all with the same toolkit that you and I have, the power of the Spirit combined with the Word of God. The final assault uh, is more of a kind of a psyops battle, if you like, mind games. Uh, He took, and then he took him up, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, you know, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil now tries to turn Jesus' own strengths into a weakness. Well, if it's the word of God that drives things here, maybe I can use something written in scripture to tempt Jesus into sin. Manipulation of scripture is one of the devil's favorite pastimes. The devil will use scripture to see if he can get Jesus to, to give, uh, you know, like a, a living demonstration of the promises around, uh, you know, who he is as a Messiah. Well, you know, wouldn't that aid your cause if people could see uh, you are the Messiah through some miraculous, you know, spectacular display? You know, after all, you trust God's word. You are committed to obeying God's word. And right here in Psalm 91, it says the way God shows that he delights in your faithfulness would be to protect you. I think this is the first instance of, you know, that horrendous prosperity preaching. You've been so faithful. Why don't you jump and show us all how much God approves of you? After all, God would surely not let his son, the Messiah, uh, suffer, endure harm. As spiritual as it sounds, Jesus recognizes it for what it is, a presumptuous test of God's care. God has not asked Jesus, nor does he ask any of us, to create artificial environments in which uh, it is presumed that God must act uh, for the sake of his own name, that he must come and come to our defense, you know, least his name be, be, be smirched somehow, to prove uh, that what we're doing has his blessing. Again, Jesus responds from Deuteronomy, this time from 6.16, a text that rebuked Israel for testing God in their time in the wilderness. And he answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended uh, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, which wasn't all that far away. Jesus neither presumes upon the Father's protection nor demands any further proof about his relationship with God. 
Jesus had heard what the Father had said about him, and it was all that he needed. He had mastered the word of God so that he knows when it's being distorted. You know, the day did come when Jesus did put his life into the hands of the Father. That day was Good Friday. We're on a cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But on that occasion, he was in full obedience to fulfill uh, the will of God. Not some you know, self-asserting uh, ministry calling, sort of approval demanding, reckless act of faith. And another day did come. A day where God raised up the Son, raised him up in glory and proved that he was indeed God's Son. That he was indeed the Messiah. That was Easter Sunday. But that didn't happen before the son faced death in order that he could be raised to eternal life. Jesus was willing to wait, willing to trust. Never once did he jump ahead of God to have his sonship artificially validated. We need to be able to faithfully wait, to humbly walk with God, not run ahead. Again, this is achieved uh, through strength of the Spirit and acquaintance with Scripture. You know, on all three occasions, Jesus defeats the devil through a combination of reliance on the Spirit and applied knowledge of Scripture. It's because Jesus stood firm in the wilderness, indeed, throughout his whole ministry, that we now are able, that he was actually then able to go on as our substitute on the cross. It was because Jesus was raised to life in affirmation of his perfect sonship, that he is the true Adam, that we are now brought back into relationship with God. And we now have the same uh, spirit that Jesus depended on, that we can now depend on. And that spirit now uh, applies the word of God to our lives whenever we are tempted, whenever we are tempted to mistrust God's care and provision, whenever we are tempted to, to worship the things of this world rather than their creator, whenever we are tempted to use God's word to get our weight rather than to wait on his perfect timing. You know, Jesus' victory in that mortal combat with the devil, uh, that's the, the, the combat that he did from his full humanity, meant that he can stand in as humanity's uh, new representative, establishing a new kingdom in which his subjects are equipped with the same word of sonship, the same spoken word of sonship from God and the same spirit to apply the scriptures to warm our hearts with affection for God the question is where do you stand when mortal combat comes into your life Uh, do, do you stand secure in the spirit of God resting in his word to fight uh, and to live in God's designs for us hey let's pray I mean God we thank you for this um this passage here in which we see Jesus does all that's asked of us to do uh, here in his humanity, never once dipping into his divinity, but all the time resisting uh, temptation, uh, pushing through suffering, uh, using the gifts and the provision that you have given us, your spirit and your word. And we give you thanks for this pattern of life that Jesus perfectly laid down so that he could become our new head and new representative, that we could stand in him. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.